Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Karen Schrag. Karen, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very good. And now I'm going to read a bit about you so that the listeners know who you are. All right. And a, a few comments along the way. Karen is a lifelong environmentalist, naturalist, educator, poet, author, and here's the big one for me, overpopulation activist. And you and I met after I posted my conversation with Bill Ryerson at the Population Media Center, and you commented on that. And now I want to give some context. Regular listeners have heard a trend in my covering abolition and slavery, which is different than overpopulation, very different. But there are parallels between the work that abolitionists did, especially in England, in the late 18th century, early 19th century, uh, to end slavery and changing that system and changing our pollution today. There's a lot of overlap. Now, that was a sensitive topic. So I brought in a bunch of experts. Now, the next difficult but necessary topic, I believe, on the environment is population and overpopulation, which is also laden with misunderstandings, but also great potential and great role models. So since the last time we spoke and now, I booked Machai Viravadya from Thailand. So he's going to be a guest on this too. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How is he? He's getting up there in age, I know. I believe he's about 80. And yeah. Bill put me in touch with him and it took a while to make it happen. We haven't spoken yet. We've just emailed. He's a hero of many of us. So now I'm going to go a little off uh, script and just say that yeah. before learning about him through Alan Weissman, I pre- do you know Alan Weissman too? I do. Okay. I do. More Actually, wait a minute. Alan and I went to the same synagogue in when it was in the north side of Minneapolis. Uh-huh. And we, we discovered that. It was just a blast because I, I, I went to his book signing for his uh, countdown for his book and met him there. That book is, yeah. is, before that book, I didn't know my awareness of overpopulation or of managing population was the one-child policy eugenics. Right. A lot of people, that's, unfortunately, that's their intro. And to me, that meant if the cure is worse than the disease, I'll take the disease. And I wouldn't talk about it because what's the point? So that book opened me up to the many success cases around the world Mm -hmm. on national Mm -hmm. and regional levels of people managing population. All right. So back to you. You got your doctorate from the University of St. Thomas in 2002, two other degrees in education, but you've recently retired as a longtime naturalist and nature center director to start move upstream uh, environmental consulting. You're also on the advisory board of the nonprofit World Population Balance with Dave Gardner, who's been a guest here, and I've been a guest on his podcast, and Earth Overshoot. And let's see, you've, you've become increasingly alarmed by the lack of discourse surrounding the overpopulation crisis. Yes. Uh, in 2015, your book, Move Upstream, A Call for Overpopulation, moved the discussion further upstream. Also, I found not in your bio, but you've written for negative population growth, which I've also been involved with. At last, and the last is that Change Our Stories, Change Our World, your book came out a few months ago. And so I see three big topics that we could cover, any of which we could just spend all in one. So one was overpopulation. Another is moving upstream and not just solving problems as they come after they're here. And the other stories, Change Our Stories, Change Our World, not just telling people what to do, but changing the narrative, at least being aware of, of different techniques than, than, I don't know how to add up, but there's a lot of like, browbeating and, and uh, bludgeoning, it seems, in the environmentalist world. So there's you in a nutshell. Can I go now? Because now, <laughs> no, no you, you've been, you, when people tell me my bio, I mean, my reaction is, I just think there's so much more to be done. So anything I've already done seems so little to me. It really does, because I just feel almost, you know, overwhelmed and challenged by the continuing challenge. 
it seems like the minute you you get, let yourself think you've made a little bit of a success or or push the needle a little forward, someone keeps pushing the needle back. So that's usually my reaction to, oh, that was nice, but I wrote that. I got to do something else. Mm-hmm. It's usually my sort of reaction to that. But thank you. Let's pick what's something you've done that you felt like this made a big difference. And then actually, let's go the other way. What's something that pushed back and you felt like, oh, that was a real blow. And then you reacted to and did something about it. Well, it's not that I've ever had a big blow back, but when I, something just happened recently, when I was asked to speak on overpopulation to a group of Universalist Unitarians in uh, San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, a place I've always wanted to go to. But a man, I don't remember his name, I wouldn't mention it anyway, asked me if I would speak on overpopulation. And I said, sure, absolutely. So we had it all set up for April 18th. This was a couple months ago. And then they went to my website and they said, great. They asked me more questions. And then suddenly I got a woman contacting me and say, I'm so sorry, but we've overbooked for Earth Day. And I said, really? Why don't you tell me who you're getting? Because I probably know them in silence. And so it's hard for me to know how to deal with not even being allowed to have a conversation. In other words, I wouldn't mind if people said, oh, I didn't like what you said. But if you don't even let me say it, that's that's what feels like a pushback to me, if that's a good example. It's like, we're not going to let you talk because yeah, it's a little dicey for us. And we just we just want to do Earth Day stuff is what I the message I was getting. But I had no, you know, I, I kind of innocently said, oh, well, who are you getting? And I, of course, I mean, they couldn't write back because mm-hmm. it was it was a lie. And, and there's another layer of that is be honest. Just tell me this is just too sensitive for you guys to get into. And I'll say, you know, I really understand that. But just to lie and then never get back to you. That's real difficult to deal with because. As a speaker and a writer, it's really hard when you're knocking on, they knocked on my door and then they shut it in my face. So that, that recently just happened. Well, let's contrast that with a case where someone, you, you're speaking to someone and maybe it happened that they said, oh, I never thought about it that way. And now I see it new, in a new way, or I don't know, you know, or something where you walked away feeling like that's what I'm doing this for. I was in uh, Arizona visiting. Actually, my, my dad's a very uh, friendly guy, and we were in Arizona. He goes, oh, you got to look up my patient's son. He's an artist there. And I go, Dad, you're pa- really? It's not a relative or anybody? Looked him up, and they said, what'd you do? And I just come out with Move Upstream, and I thought, well, I don't even know these people. Let's just tell them what it's about. And and his wife looked at me, and she said, oh, my God, we, we have to get you as a guest speaker. I said, Really? I said, I'm not coming back to Arizona in the summer. That's just for sure. Ick. She goes, no, 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 no. You're coming to China and you're going to speak to the women's group at a university. And can you get yourself there? And she was going to come with me. And then she couldn't come. So here I find myself on a plane to China to speak about overpopulation to Chinese women. And I just on the plane, I'm going, what did I get myself into? But it was just that, oh my God, I got this not only great interest, but the women of China need to hear you. And then the hardest question I had to answer was a woman pregnant with her second child, because the one child policy, we could talk about that for hours, but the one child policy was was skirted around by, you just went to your sister-in-law's to have the second baby, and then you brought it back, and they were often eight years apart, blah, blah, blah. But she asked me, she said, 
what would you think about loosening the China's policy? And I said, you know, let me just tell you what I've experienced so far. I've experienced really bad air. I've experienced no parks and no birds. I see nets up at the airport, and I know that anything that goes in those nets from Mao's era, you can eat. I just don't see what gets better with more people who have to eat and have to. So that whole experience that I've just articulated was one of great it felt just great because I thought I was talking to people who actually were in that moment of they obviously wanted to have more children. Uh, men, of course, due to the dowry system are favored more. And if you've got a girl, that led to a lot of other, you know, infant side and all kinds of other problems. But it also, if you if you look at it, it saved millions from starvation, which was the intention of Dao Che Peng's policy in 1979. So anyway, I, that it was just one conversation, and I ended up in China talking to women about overpopulation. So it was it was pretty amazing. A couple of questions come out of that for me. One yeah. is that is there a? I know that overt in certainly the United States. I would think that if a politician is running for office, mm-hmm. they're generally going to go with growth. And I think if they say lower the population, they're probably not going to get elected. That may change right. in time, but currently that seems to be the case. Mm-hmm. But when it, I mean, when I talk to my mom about it, she, she's not really supportive of my not flying and things like that. She doesn't understand it. She doesn't get it. But when I talk population, she jumps on that. She's like, oh man, what happened in the 60s and 70s? Why did that go away? And she talks about like relatives with big families, which big would be three or more. And so I believe that there's also an undercurrent, probably global, of people who say, this is, this is crazy. We got to do something about it. So that's one thing is, is there, you might know if there's more of this undercurrent than I do. And the other thing is going back, since you went back probably to before you were born, what got you started? Okay. So I hear two questions there. Two separate questions. Yeah. Two completely different. So to answer your first question, the undercurrent and and the most welcoming audiences that I've had over time, and I've been doing this since the early 90s, have been people who remember ZPG. That's probably your mother's generation. ZPG had, you know, stop it too, because there really isn't enough to go around. It was a very clear message. And they remember that. And it disappeared. And it was intentionally disappeared. I go through this in my book. There was a president's commission during Nixon's time on uh, population run by Rockefeller. I won't go into all the details, but basically he was told to shelve it by the League of Bishops who said, if you even go there, we're going to make sure that our people don't vote for you. So, and that just, there was a whole bunch of pe- things that David Baum, who said to Sierra Club, if you if you ever talk about population again, I won't give you this $110 million. So, I mean, there was a lot of bribery going on to to calm it down and put it away and put it on the shelf. And then it just got so much worse. So there was an intentional, so so what your mother's generation remembers and the people I speak to, they remember a very forthright. In fact, I also say in my book that Paul Ehrlich, who, who that's when I got started, that answers both questions, 11th grade, LTF. We used to meet at my, my uh, rabbi's house and we studied the population bomb. And I never forgot it. In fact, I was asked to come back when, it's a long story, but Jane Goodall spoke at Bethel Synagogue where I was, where I was raised. And the rabbi came to me and said, would you like to speak at the men's club breakfast the week before? And I said, well, rabbi, I only speak on one issue. And he goes, well, I'm game if you are. And I go, how am I going to bring this up to a group of people who've been told 
that they always have to have three children to make up for the one in the Holocaust. And you know what I said? My first line was, it's Rabbi Abelson's fault. He made me read the book, The Population Bomb, when I was in 11th grade, and I've never forgotten it. So that was really the beginning. And then I think I got sidetracked. Well, you know, you you get your career and you, I ended up running a nature center. Another happened into a job. I literally applied for it and said, oh, they're not going to hire me. And I didn't even fill out all the form. They called me back and I said, I'm not going to take it because I don't, that's not enough money for me. And then they said, no, we really want you. And they gave me the salary. And all of a sudden I found myself in charge of a 150 acre nature center right next to the Twin Cities airport. And you get involved in things like pulling buckthorn and teaching maple. So you get, and, and about a month or two into my job, I get a call from this guy who lives literally next to the nature center. I mean, could walk over and his name is David Paxson. And he says, can I talk to you? And, you know, he goes, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to do this on the phone. So 45 minutes later, he's the founder of world population balance. And he sort of roped me back into the issue, which I always cared about. How did he hear about you to contact you? Oh, because I my picture was in the paper saying, welcome to the new nature center manager. And he goes, I want to meet her because I want to see where she is on this issue. And it's I just talked to him today. It's been a lifelong friendship. And I I told him that I would only go on his advisory board and not his board of directors. I had been on a board of directors of Kids for Saving Earth, which taught me that I'm not a very good candidate for board of directors. Things I cannot meet for hours talking about who's going to order the potato salad. I, I just... So let's not talk about that. <laughs> don't want to do that. Uh-huh. But but that was that's my trajectory of, of 11th grade reading Population Bomb, getting, you know, I, I wasn't involved in ZPG. I also had such a tremendous love of wildlife. And I could also see that wildlife was always the, the first thing to hurt when humans, especially post-industrial humans, started developing the land and the landscape. And I could just see it happening all around me. There, there was a high rise that went up right next to my nature center. I remember the day when I called and said, could you please turn off that light? We can't do nighttime star watching. We can't, you know, all these things that kept happening. Or you end up being the one called when a bird flies into a window and you, you have this poor little owl that flew into a window and you take it to the Raptor Center. We have a wonderful Raptor Center in the Twin Cities. So all these things just kept reminding me that the human enterprise, which is not just consumption, but it's how many, it's like, it's like, what are those feet doing and how many feet are there was really the issue. And so when people say, did you love your job? I said, yes, I did. But I couldn't wait to retire to work on what I really care about full time, which is what I've been doing ever since. Overpopulation. Retire. Yep. Yeah. I for people listening who haven't really thought about it, I don't have the experience that Karen does. But I can tell you there's a big shift that happened. I alluded to it when going from thinking the cure is worse than the disease to learning that great examples of people who deliberately, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, there's just this um, what's it called? The demographic transition where if we get enough education and enough economic growth, then the population just starts leveling off by itself. And maybe that does happen in some countries, but it seems more and more that I'm finding that it happens when people deliberately act. And when they do that, it brings prosperity and abundance per person and stability, the opposite of of what everyone thinks. And once my mind opened up to talking about it, everything changes. Every single environmental issue is population. Yeah. And I'll take it one step further, but don't mean to interrupt you, but something just occurred to me today. 
that it's we can almost talk about everything horrible on the, just on the news. You know, this car crash, five people were killed. That's okay to show. You can show now that the new story, Big Green Lies, is a new book. You can show how we've been tricked into believing that renewable energy is going to save us and so on. All these things can be shown. This issue, this overpopulation issue, has solvable, already invented solutions, mm-hmm. and yet we can't talk about it. And that's the so, you know, you can tell me that green energy doesn't work. And I've believed that for a very long time. Bird watchers hate when the wind turbines kill all the birds, but it's much more than that. But that's that you can say, even, you know, with there's pushback on that. Don't get me wrong. But pushback, I wouldn't mind. We're silenced. We've been thrown under the rug, under the carpet. You can't talk about it. And the reason I keep and thank you for allowing me to share my voice on this, is that we've already got the solutions. I was just interviewed on a podcast about a month ago, and the guy said, what if we gave $2,000 to, to, for people to get vasectomies? I said, you know what? The solutions are here. That is not the problem. We have to change our story and understand what the problem is. We have to tell them why. And, and we're full of solutions. Whereas when you, when you get rid of green energy, those solutions are what do you do? You say hydropower is crappy. Everything is crappy. No way out. Well, there is a way out. The way out is, you know, smaller and smaller families that you start nurturing the ones that are here. There's just so many answers. And that's what's so perplexing about this problem is I know what humans are like, especially Americans. They want snap, snap, give me a pill. I want to get this done. I don't want to work at it. You don't have to. Actually, a pill pill works here. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, pill, yeah, birth control pill. Yeah. yeah. But I mean what I mean. I mean, we, we just don't, you know, we don't want to like, we don't want to sacrifice. And and the, the truth is when you said that the problem is worse than the cure, people don't understand the problem. It's 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 so huge. You know, my dad's 95, he's still around, he's still uh very vital and and one of my biggest supporters and fans. And yet in his lifetime, he was born in 1926. So was that two billion? Yeah. So we've added nearly 6 billion people in one person's lifetime. And that's what the exponential factor is that Dr. Al Bartlett talked about is we need to understand that if you, you know, if two people have four people and four people have four people and that's the X and then at best we can raise our resources arithmetically, but usually they go down like that. Yeah. And one of the exercises I've been giving myself is to just keep imagining a world of 3 billion people. Because if Weisman's book talked about uh, agriculture requires as an input fossil fuels for the Haber-Bosch process to fix nitrogen for artificial fertilizer. If we don't have that, we don't have artificial fertilizer, we have to undo the green revolution. What did we have before the green revolution? We had like 2 billion people. Probably there's other technologies we could throw in that don't require fossil fuels, hybridizations, and I don't know. So say 3 billion, maybe two. And actually one and a half children per woman for a few generations globally. Mm-hmm. brings us to that by 2100, roughly speaking. Right. So I've read. And mm-hmm. a world with 2 billion people. So the first thing that I would think is what I would hear people say. is like, well, we need more geniuses. I, I don't think I thought that. But to which I point out Einstein and Mozart, that was less than 2 billion people when they were born. And That's usually right. the people saying stuff like that, Jesus, 500 million people, maybe at that time. 300 about. 300 million. Okay. And Aristotle and Lao Tzu and Confucius and Muhammad. They were all like well below a billion people. And I don't see uh, the current Jesus is walking around today. 
maybe when you cry, if they're worried about if they're going to make it, they can't rise to become what they would. If, you know, if Shakespeare was alive today, maybe he could become Shakespeare, but he might have to worry about, can he put food on the table? Exactly. But not only that, why do we have to wait for geniuses to look at what I, I consider to be it's such a simple problem? I say the genius is already here and they're telling us, stop having so many kids. <laughs> well, in other words, I don't, I don't see myself as a genius, nor any of the people you mentioned. I just think of them as more, it's the real kind of awake. It's like, if you just open your eyes, you will see this and you do not, you do not need a high IQ to see it. It's just open your eyes. And I, I will give the people who have no time to do it and are completely stressed out. But when people tell me during COVID how bored they are, I'm like, really? You're bored? There's so much needs to be done. Read a book, learn, contribute. I mean, we, you can't just hang your hat on the next person or politician. It's got to be you. You've got to be the hero we're looking for. I don't know if I told you when we spoke before about my view on vasectomies and, and LASIK surgery. No. Okay. When I got LASIK on my eyes, somewhere well, the listeners can't see this, but I'm wearing, these are reading glasses, but I had LASIK so that I could see distance years mm-hmm. and years ago. Mm-hmm. So I wake up one morning and, I, and I'm like, oh, I can see. I have 20-20. LASIK got me 20-20 vision, but that's mm-hmm. not accurate. Glasses got me 20-20 vision also. I already had 20-20 where, when I wore glasses or contacts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What LASIK got me was freedom from glasses or contacts. A vasectomy doesn't get you no children or you know a family of the whatever size you want. Not having sex gives you that. Vasectomy yeah. gives you great sex without worrying about having a kid. It's not about deprivation. Yeah, yeah it's about freedom. Right. It, gives you, it gives you the freedom of not worrying that you're going to accidentally do what you didn't want to do. Right. It gives you that control gives and freedom. You freedom. Yeah, it, freedom. Yeah. I think yes. if you don't want to have another kid and you're having sex, I think that's going to weigh on you. Like, oh, I got to make sure this doesn't break and all this stuff like that. Whereas, mm-hmm. I mean, there's and vasectomy is like many other types of contraception, many ways mm-hmm. to do it. And it gives you freedom. And one of the things that gets me is that when I read about developing nations, third world countries, they want this. Like yes. people here talk about we're imposing on them as if all the other IMF and World Bank stuff is not like terribly imposing. As if we're not, you know, when because we want to grow our population for keeping wages down and things like that. On the right, it's keeping wages down. On the left, it's because we want to be fair and help them with their problems. But Well said, well said. So they all want this. They'll say one thing, but they, they promote immigration. And so our population is growing right. and we are motivated to keep other countries economically depressed relative to us so that we get the best. Not only do we get the best, but they're doing the labor to give us the crap that we get in the dollar store. I mean, why is that stuff so cheap? Because, you know, and, and one thing I learned in China, just to, just to add to that whole labor thing, I asked him just in conversation, I said, so what do you do on the weekend? What is a weekend? We work every day. If we don't show up for work, we will be replaced. And it dawned on me, oh my God, when you're overpopulated, each individual is worth less, which comes to the word worthless. And Jeffersonian democracy says the individual is so important. What could be more important to America than valuing individuals more by having less of us relative to our resources? So that would be a great fit for America. But there's all these other narratives that have climbed to the top and taken over that conversation. And I don't think people realize that we as a nation are promoting other nations' depressed economic lack of success 
And yes. I, I got to say, there is a gut feeling of if we say, if we overtly said, we're going to lower your population, that would sound terrible. I would not like that. But if we said, and this is what Bill Ryerson, he, he put it very clearly, like it's the government shouldn't have a say in this. And people really want lower, smaller families. We should enable them to make the choices that they want. I think that that message, there's a message there. I don't know. I haven't worked it out. That is, I think, not just palatable, but desirable of enabling them. I mean, if we have two nations and one of them is overpopulated and the other one is not, and then not one, I mean, we are actually, from the numbers I see, we are, the United States is overpopulated if we don't rely on fossil fuels to over to sustain what's not sustainable. We're overpopulated just based on water. We're overpopulated, but go ahead. You can Phoenix, yeah. yeah. And so even if we were underpopulated, if you have two nations, one's overpopulated and then one's not, and then not overpopulated one keeps accepting people from the overpopulated place, you now have two overpopulated places. And I don't see any way around this. And I don't, you can throw race and sex and whatever in there. It doesn't change that pattern. If you, if you always accept, if, even if we're not overpopulated and we always accept people from a place that is overpopulated, that is motivating the overpopulated place to remain overpopulated. Well said. Well said. That happens in, I've been to Belize a couple of times and uh, very interested in, in the whole Maya culture and made friends with a archaeologist there. And Belize is pretty much a steady state of not, and it's because of a brain drain. They leave for college. They don't have colleges there and they don't come back. But Guatemala is overpopulated and they don't, they've always seen Belize as sort of their country. And there's a big kind of border problem. I crossed over into Guatemala a little bit, but basically that's exactly what they're doing. They're looking at all this forest and they're looking at all this, you know, beachfront property. And they're like, Hey, we want some of that. And so when I was speaking to the people uh, locally in Belize, I said, if you don't realize what a great country you have, you're not a very rich country, but you're rich in wonderful people. They still have three of uh, the three original Mayan languages spoken there that are so different from each other. They're, they're more different than like German and English. They're, I mean, they don't even understand. It can't relate. It, they're, it's amazing, amazing place. And yet very poor by our standards. And, and they become vulnerable to people going, wait a minute, you've got some resources. We want to come there. And so you're absolutely right. There's a tension between us. So it has to be done locally and it has to be done globally. We have to get this story that out there that if you push your own limits in your own country, if you push the limits of the globe, which industrialization allowed us to do and fueled this big upturn, the hockey stick curve that you see when population is shown, when it's shown, you sort of go, wait a minute, we are driving the train over the edge of the cliff of collapse. Wouldn't you want to put your feet on the brakes and have a, a world that's not going to be, as some people say, make the living jealous of the dead? I mean, it's really a horrible thing to think of billions of people without water, food, shelter, everything that humans need. I have a background, you know, my PhD is in physics, and I think I understand science pretty well. I don't think anyone understands all the science. I'm jealous. Of, <laughs> I don't think everyone understands all the science of, of all the different things going on between global warming and plastics and mercury and deforestation and extinctions and everything. All this overpopulation is at the root of. But I don't work on, and I also know how fusion works and how fission works. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on leadership because I think that's the important issue. The, one of the ways I put it is carbon dioxide is not the cause of global warming. If I could snap my fingers and return all this pollution and, and greenhouse gases to pre-industrial levels, but did not change our behavior, we'd be right back here soon enough. 
a couple decades away. Whereas if we change our behavior, then, well, we're affected by stuff that people did 20 years ago. So still for decades, what we are doing today will keep affecting us, but at least we'll, we can change direction. So when you say they won't even let me talk and you say, we've got to change the stories. To me, I want to make sure people get that some of the numbers that if we don't have fossil fuels, the United States can sustain something like, I see like 150, 200 million people. Mm-hmm. We're well above that. The world at a European level, something like 3 billion people, maybe less. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think about that enough, it start. I mean, when I look at a world with 3 billion people, I can actually go to some place and get away from people, which I don't think is possible now. There's a site that shows pictures of guidebooks and then reality. And you see like the Eiffel Tower is like this beautiful thing. And then the line is like hours long. It's just people, ah, Machu Picchu, like looks so beautiful. And then the actual thing is like. I want that site because I think about that. And I write about that all the time. Yeah, it's, it's not depressing, but it's, uh, it certainly is um, eye-opening. Sobering. Yeah, very sobering. So changing people's behavior, especially on a global level, to me, that's the domain of leadership. It could, to some extent, there's management involved giving people facts and figures and, and information and incentives. A manager seeks compliance. But Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a four-point plan. He said, I have a dream. He did have a four-point plan, but you need both. And there's no one saying, I have a dream. There's no one, and not just, I have a dream, nebulous stories. I mean, when I read Letter from Birmingham Jail, a response to the white leaders of Birmingham saying, wait, slow down, it'll work, it'll happen. And he writes about what it's like to drive across the South with his family and to tell his kids, we can't go to Funhouse. We can't go to the amusement park because I'm powerless as a father to do anything about that. I'm not a black man in the South in the 60s or 50s. And I feel closer to him than I would to the the preachers and and the the white leaders who spoke to say, slow down. That's not the only type of story to tell to one's vulnerabilities, but it's very personal. And Machai seems to have, I love his stories and I keep learning more of them of, Bill talks about, oh yeah, I remember hanging out with Machai in the 80s. It was a mass vasectomy event, which is not the sort of thing I would think being fun, but I think he turned into fun things and Captain Condom and Condoms and Cabbages restaurants. Did you hear about having his waiters wear condoms on their heads? I, there's a picture of that. It's so funny. Tell me. Yeah. Oh, you just, just saw the picture? It's Yeah. It's just so funny. Or they have like condoms made beautiful condoms made into uh, fashion statements. I mean, gowns made out of condoms and they're red and green and blue. And, oh yeah. I mean, we could have fun with this. We could have fun with this. And, and I think we need to. When you talk about these challenges, I'm like, that's the challenge to face. Giving people more information. I, I want them to have enough information. No, this is not out of left field, but information and projects for people to do and people to get. So I, I haven't started working on stories for this. I, I guess I got my stories about, uh, the spider mites and the, and the elk. Mm-hmm. I think I told you about that before. Yeah. Yeah. Now that readers, well, it's in the book, the book, I just finished the first draft of the book and now you got to wait a year for the book to come out. But anyone <laughs> wants to know what I'm talking about with spider mites and elk, email me and I'll tell you. But that's a way to me of, it's so much more, very briefly, it, it's stories about elk over, not having enough food over the winter. And a hunter knows this. Hunters know what happens if you have an overpopulated area. Likewise, I was growing some plants in my, in my windowsill and the spider mites ate the whole thing. And it's overpopulation. They don't know how to stop themselves. They're animals. 
And as far as I can tell, we're not doing any better than the animals. People say, oh, but we're leveling off. If we're leveling off above what Earth can sustain, then that stays off the collapse, but it, it's still going to be a collapse. Oh, I have two, two quick stories. One was, I was at the Breakthrough Institute. I don't know if you know about them. And I was told by two university professors, much smarter than me, who showed me graphs, all kinds of graphs, how our percentage of growth was leveling off. And I thought, yeah, but, but you know, it's still growing. Don't, don't get, I'm not going to go get a mortgage with you because they're going to tell you about how your percent, but it's the percent of what the percent of, I'm not a mathematician, but if you have 1% of a billion, that's different than 1% of a million, excuse me, but I'm not going to celebrate that. Yes, we're growing. We, when I first started this, we were growing by 93 million a year. Now we're growing by 80 million. That could be seen as progress, but it's not progress when your ship is still, it's just a smaller hole in your boat. The boat's still going to sink. And I totally agree with you about numbers, except for one thing. And that's that the other day I was getting my haircut and a woman had a, had a book by the side of her thing. And I said, oh, that's the, that's the DNR book on, on uh, Minnesota resources. She's, oh, I love nature. And we got around to it. I said, do you know how many people are on the planet? She goes, I haven't a clue. Really? And I said, you know what, that's not your fault, because there isn't a magazine I could write to today to talk about overpopulation that would let me print my story in that. So this is the issue. Yeah. If there's no magazine that will print the story, then trying submitting more stories isn't the answer. It isn't going to work. Right. Exactly. It isn't the answer. But what I, what I was trying to get at was, you don't know it because you think you, you love nature. You read a book on nature. You think you know everything because this is the authority. You've given it authority. And they know it. And they go, well, we took away their band, their bandwidth of learning about nature's this big and we filled it up. Go away, Karen, because there's no more room for you. So I don't blame the individual who's not interested in this, that they don't know that it's not out in the public discourse because it's really been hidden from them. So, and it's a waste of time to blame people anyway. But I agree with you. We have to find, and I'm listening, what are better avenues, better tactics, better stories, and it does it is it the carrot or stick? It's probably a combination of both. But I mean, just the basics, the very basics, people don't know. Yeah, this to me is the issue. The issue is people, their stories, their and if we're not working on that, then it's just like the fossil fuels. The whole science, as far as I can tell. The Koch brothers led the entire scientific establishment to run around in circles, trying to prove to them something that they were never going to be accept as proof, no matter what. Oh, about climate change? As Reagan said, I'm sure you're no fan of Reagan, but he said, if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah. And I believe he's accurate on that. Yeah. And as long as they were like, explain it to me, then it's basically saying lose. And they're like, okay, I'll let me lose more. Yeah. I think that's good. I think that's true. And I, and I think that, that, that we, we just haven't been in charge of the narrative for a really long time. And those people who got permission to be in charge of the narrative, they threw us under the bus too. And that's, what's really sad. I think, I think I can understand it because there's an economic piece to it. They go, well, we can't offend our donors. So we're not going to go there. And someone's willing to write us a big check. Well, we've now we've got this big office and we've got all these people working for us. So, you know, at least we'll save this piece of land which they might trade off for something else later. So there's been a lot of, a lot of soul losing on this. There's been a lot of, uh, and not enough soul searching, unfortunately. So this is, I mean, this to me is, is, I had a big struggle over the past 
six months or so of when I found the parallel between ending the slave trade and ending. So the, at, at one point in the late 1700s, slavery had been around. Slavery was normal. Mm-hmm. Slavery, there were, I've read reports that there were more people in various forms of slavery and every culture had had it up until then. And if, if you said, if someone said, I'm going to try to end the slave trade, that would be crazy. Absolutely nuts. Mm-hmm. It's been around forever. Every culture, uh, it's normal. It's if we don't do it, someone else will. What you do is it doesn't matter. And yet I'm inspired by Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, and their peers. Then later in America, now I'm blanking on the names. That's what happens when, I'm, when, the re, when we record. In any case, and so I couldn't really talk about it because people were like, Josh, if you talk about this, you know, your, your white skin is going to play a big role in what people hear. And so I, I brought on a lot of experts and a lot of people to, to find a way that I could speak about it meaningfully, mm-hmm. that we could learn from what they did because they, a small number of individuals took on an industry that at that time was the fossil fuel industry is like, the slave trade was the fossil fuel industry of, it, of its time. The British empire was the biggest empire the world had ever known. And they won. They, I mean, slavery exists today. Slavery is not ended, but it's illegal virtually everywhere. And it is not, it is viewed talk to almost anyone and they say slavery is wrong. It's, it's immoral. I think, I think the way reason, and I, I actually, uh, when somebody said to me, are you optimistic about this, this work? And I said, I think of myself as an abolitionist 150 years before slavery was illegal. I, you can't give up. There's, there's too much at stake. And I think they, they framed it as an immoral issue that it was immoral for one person to enslave another. And I, I don't think that's a bad idea for this because how how moral is it to enslave others to 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 destroy orangutans in, in Borneo for palm oil? How moral is that? And there's a deep immorality in what I like what I call the great human gobbling of the planet. And and we're the we're the last we're the we're the victims here too because. As much as people have said to me over the years, oh, Karen, it's nice you're a bird watcher and you love the butterflies and you've never sprayed pesticides in your yard and everything. And I said, you know what? I need those bees more than they need me. And, and that's, the, that's the real unfortunate disconnect that, that's around. I, I see it as a great immorality, the way we treat the environment that, that uh, we need versus the other way. The way we cut down uh, old growth trees now to... To for the wood pellet industry? Are you kidding me? And and then they'll tell you, oh no, these trees were already damaged by uh, bark beetles. Not true. They're done with those trees. They're now going after old growth, healthy trees to make wood pellets so we can have more energy. And and all this stuff that that we've been we've been lied to by industry. We've been lied to by by big green. It's time to tell the truth and. We have to be brave to do that. And I, I'm just so passionate about the earth that I have never lost the passion to tell the truth as I see it. And I'm very willing. I always go into a, a group, Josh, and I say, you know, I have no agenda here that's beyond what I'm saying. And I would love to be wrong, but I need evidence to be wrong. You can't just tell me I'm wrong. Please show me the evidence because all the evidence I see is that I'm not wrong. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, 
If it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. This is why I'm hesitant to say, I don't see it as a moral issue. I don't see it as a truth issue because if I say, look, I'm right and you're wrong, they say, all right, then you give me the evidence. And now then I'm explaining. And I don't see that working. To say I'm morally right and I have the truth on my side, I think is a losing story. I can I can hear you on that. I'm just saying that that's my first... When I see a, a an owl that runs into a window and most people see that, I, I, think, I think somehow... Maybe the answer is, and I want to be in dialogue with you about it, is they have to come up with that conclusion, not me. Does that make sense? See, I think that they say, well, if that window is on a hospital Mm -hmm. and that hospital is saving people's lives Mm -hmm. and you want to have lower population, from their perspective, you want to have lower population, all right? Lower population means we don't have the jobs. We're not going to have the infrastructure. We're not going to be able to maintain the roads and the hospitals. Mm -hmm. Mothers are going to die in childbirth. We're going to have 30s going to be old age again. And we need growth. And if we don't have population growth to support GDP growth, everything's going to crumble. And you're worried about an owl hitting a window, but that window means progress. That window means saving lives. That, mean, that window means- That's, that's not what they would say. Today's generation is healthier, more longevity than the past generation. And look at human history. What has brought more people, more material prosperity and built more wealth than the free market and capitalism? And mm-hmm. the fastest, the most, if we want to solve it, I want to solve this problem more than you do, they would say. Mm-hmm. And this, this system has solved every problem that's come its way. Yeah, the market may work not exactly how you want, but the best thing we can do is for us to be free, for the market to be free, not legislated, and then the market will solve this. Prices will adjust, people will innovate as is, as is happening, and we'll have ways of figuring out how we'll put stickers on the windows for the birds. And so they won't hit the windows. You know, it'll be something that has worked before. And, you know, I value people over bats, uh, birds. And bats, for sure. <laughs> and so to come in and say, yeah, but I'm right. I don't, I don't see that. So what, what would you say? As a, see, I just think it's really interesting how grounded you are in physics. Because I come back to physics all the time, although I'm not a physicist. But the physics of the planet doesn't support their narrative. I wish it would, but it doesn't. There's limits and there's entropy. And there's all the kinds of things that physics teaches us. And so if your counter argument can't really be numbers and graphs. If you're in arguments, it's over. Okay. You're lost. So if you have an argument and say, prove it, they're like, well, we got the votes, so I don't need to prove anything. Right. Notice this assets that, that they have. Go to Houston. <laughs> there's the argument. Mm-hmm. We can do it and we're going to. Right. So I don't see that. I mean- there's something to be said for showing the consequences of the Fertile Crescent. It used to be the Fertile Crescent. Now, I think of pictures of like the oil wells burning in the Iraqi war. I'm like, that used to be the Fertile Crescent. Crescent. That's where civilization began, mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways of putting it. And now it's a desert burning on fire. How do you light a desert on fire? Right, right. So that to me is, is compelling. That to me is actually, there's that, the Population Media Center. Mm-hmm. They have that book over, 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 overpopulated, mm-hmm. over that, those images, mm-hmm. those the are great compelling. Book. I have it. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's free. So I'll put a link on for everyone listening to this because it's just, you can scroll through it and you can read the words, which will slow you down, but you can also just look at the pictures and it's stunning. I mean, I, I said this to Bill, like if you forget about the content of the images, just, just the composition and the quality, it's just beautiful, beautiful images. And then you see the overpopulation and you're like, this is undeniable. And what the Population Media Center, the reason I contacted them mm-hmm. was because they're, they're leading, as it seems to me. They're creating media and characters that help, that we can learn from. And so I contacted them because I thought, this is, I can learn from them. Mm-hmm. I, they're doing something that, that, that seems to work, that it's tough to object to. And I said, they, so they have all their stuff going to Africa, Central America, uh, South America, mm-hmm. Asia. And they got a big hit show in the United States. Uh, East Los High. And I'm saying, okay, influencing all these different communities. That's very important. What about rich Americans? <laughs> How about them? Like that's a group to influence. So if you put on a show in Ethiopia, you can get 50, 60, 70, 80% of the population listening to it, a radio show. Right. Put on something in the US, you got thousands and thousands of channels that are on at the same time. A lot of competition. And yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm bringing you on because there was Bill... I don't think even when Dave Gardner was on, I, I'm not even sure we talked so much about population. We might have, but this is the new thing for me. It's like, now I feel comfortable talking about abolition from having brought on many, many experts and learning from them. And uh, certainly having many conversations where I made mistakes and said something, people are like, what are you talking about, Josh? You're, you're equating slavery, slavery. You're equating slavery to uh, plastic litter. So, okay, don't say it that way. <laughs> Well, it is so interesting because, unfortunately, we're at a time where intent doesn't have any meaning anymore, and it should. It should. Certainly, we can step in our own goo. But, I mean, to me, you listen and you you, you do this, and intent really matters because you can say some really great things and have terrible intent, or you can say some pretty not-so-good things. And have really great intent. And we, there's no nuance anymore, unfortunately. But I, I appreciate, you know, that, that everything you're saying, everything you're saying, because I, I don't think we've been successful in our small, small, tiny movement because of possibly lack of ideas, lack of skills, not lack of intent, but lack of skills and, and a narrowing lack of opportunity because of the issue itself. There's more and more people in the world. There's more noise in the world. There's more problems in the world. But also because of this, this idea that you will be shamed before you get out of the gate. Yeah, I think you're alluding in part to, I think it was someone wrote something. And I don't know, people look at this as, as there's a race and sex and, and religion gets into this. And people with loud voices that the press loves can really take down that if they can mm-hmm. say this is, it's very easy to say this is a race issue or this is a sex issue. And suddenly, well, it hasn't happened to me yet. Maybe it never will. But it does seem like there's um, people who I would, political people who I would think would agree if they got it, that population is an issue, might say, oh, I'm not going to touch that because of what is not a race issue, but it can get framed that way. And we have to own the past. I mean, people can weaponize anything, and they have. Um, they, they will say, oh, people overpopulated. Well, let's get rid of those people. Which people are you going to get rid of, Karen? You know, I've, I've heard that and heard that. And that's why it takes this upstream perspective of saying, what are we collectively, all of us, 
doing to the planet. I, I got up this morning and I started writing down everything I did today that was sustainable. And it was a blank page. I, I don't know anything that I do that's sustainable. And, and meaning that in an overpopulated world, you know, what happens with my plastic toothbrush? I, I read that there were like 300 billion toothbrushes thrown out in the U.S. every year. You know, I mean, and so you start going from the premise of nothing I can do is really fully sustainable when you have to multiply it by 330 million people. And in some cases, 8 billion people. So if that's what the reality is, then can we have a conversation about how to ratchet that down? All right. So I'll do the process with you that I was describing yeah, before sure. we started recording. Sure. And this is my leadership. Te- this is what I call my building block. It's a one-on-one exercise mm-hmm. that usually leads people to doing something. And then the podcast is a way to build a structure with the one block. Is it fair to say that the environment is something that you care about? It is. And, and something you've acted on. Yes. When you act on the environment, what motivates you? What I don't mean future goals or what you're doing or the strategy. I mean, what inside you says this is something to act on? This is like, is there a memory or a story or an image that, that is, is a touchstone for you? The endangered species list that keeps growing. I think you don't mean a printed list with words on a page. It does. Yeah, I do. So tell me what it, what it means to you. What? Well, I, I see a list of, of animals I deeply care about getting on a list that means that they're soon to be off the planet. And that list keeps growing. Butterflies and, you know, uh, bees and and that we're tied to their lives is is part of it. But I just deeply care about not just the ones that are currently endangered, but um, I worked very hard trying to, and my nature said it was 150 acres and we had half of the state's birds come through our area. But in the course of that, my time there, my, it was almost three decades I worked there, the, the numbers of most species kept going down and we worked really hard to pr- provide better habitat. And so what inspired me was to say, no matter how hard I work in trying to keep native species planted there, no matter how hard I work to try to keep the waters cleaner in that particular environment, it taught me a great lesson was that the problem was bigger than where I was and what I could control because in Northern Minnesota, they were, they were growing uh, rice for China. They drained the prairie potholes. Our duck species went down by 60% just by that one action. So I could see that birds, particularly, I'm a bird watcher. And, and when you ask me what I, I do it for the birds, I mean, that's really one of my great motivators. I'm hearing that it's, it isn't just words on a page, although it might also be words on a page, but you actually saw the birds and you saw lack of birds right. in subsequent years. I'm looking out the birds in my window. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, listeners couldn't see this, but we're on video and she's like, she bends over and looks over out the window, I guess, behind the computer. Yep. I'm looking at a cardinal and a, and a, and a slate colored junco right now that I've been feeding all winter. And how does it make you feel? What, what emotions come to, come to mind or heart went about either the birds as you know them or the lack of birds that the indigenous of them? I, they're, they're my touchstone. They're Mm -hmm. my touchstone for what, what's important. What's important is their world, their lives, what they can teach me. I feel humbled in their presence. I mean, people say, oh, it was a hard winter. I said, are you a chickadee? They were outside all winter. You know, I just try to give that perspective, you know, and, and they have the biggest brains because you know what? They've been hiding food all winter. That's why I'm so important to feed them right now is they're running out of the food because we just had snow today in Minnesota 
And in the middle of March, they're like, ugh, I, I didn't, but they have the biggest brains of the little birds. And, and what I feel is so impressed by their, their capacity for survival. I'm so, and yet we take that away from them when we put up a new high rise and we put so, so I feel impressed. I feel humbled in their presence. I feel love. I feel shame that I'm part of the story of, of getting rid of them on the planet. And I feel kind of the whole spectrum of emotions when it comes to particularly birds. Yesterday, I went to see, I saw a dozen swans down on the river, a real success story. That gives me pride because friends of mine were actually worked really hard to bring the trumpeter swan back from extinction. And now I just see him flying over my house and it's great. I heard humility, love, shame, impressed. You didn't say wonder, but I, I couldn't help but hear wonder. Uh, that's that's on there too. Yeah. And appreciation, connection. You didn't say, but it sounded like, I mean, you said the whole gamut of emotions and so mm-hmm. a, a big range as well. Mm-hmm. Based on those feelings, I invite you, and this is at your option, to think of something you could do to act on those, on that touchstone, on those feelings. And to make sure you don't hear, you didn't hear what it's something I didn't say. I'm not saying it's not about the outside world. It's not to fix, you said like, these things are really big. There are big things to work on, but this is not that. Mm-hmm. It, it will affect the world, but that's not the point. And to think of something that, that you could do, that it has to be um, new, something that you do yourself, that is with your hand, not saying, oh, other people, I'll get other people to do something. By all means, do that if you want, but this is to do with your own hands and with some physical component that you don't have to measure, but that makes a difference that you would consider an improvement. So what I would like to show you is what mm-hmm. I... That that I'm kind of ahead of you. When I was working, we had bird feeders. We had, all, and I said, I don't have time for that. And just this year, I bought a a heated bird bath, the most deluxe one you can buy. So worth it. And it heats water. And believe it or not, birds will take baths this time of year, and they drink. And so that's out my window. Yesterday, I put out. You know, I'm, I'm working hard trying to figure out this something called bark butter that the birds really like that I bought, but the squirrels keep getting it all. And I do want to feed the squirrels a little bit too. So I'm involved already in this hands-on project. So I might mm-hmm. have to scratch my brain to do another one, but I totally mm-hmm. agree with you that if I'm not doing it in my own backyard, how can I even want anybody else to, to do it? So those are some of the things. Well, you've anticipated part of what I'm suggesting, Yeah, uh, but let's do it anyway. Okay, sure. And it, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't decline, but if you're up for it, I'm reading now a joy in describing what you've done so far or some of the things you're doing. Oh, it's fun. And so I anticipate that this will be joyful. And some people, they're like, what about time and money? I predict it will save time and money. Oh, yeah. Right? And that can, that can be a constraint or you, or you can spend time and money it, it, depending on your interests. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just, and it's all connected. So if I do something for the birds, it can be something as physical as figuring out how to get bark butter and keep it away from the squirrel. Or it can be something about eating locally and, and making my own food. And like you do get rid of packaging and, and all those things that help birds, not just here, but in migration. So they don't have to deal with plastic and, you know, all that stuff as well. So I, I can, I can hear you, you know, that it can be interpreted many ways. And, and I, I am not only up for the challenge, but that I do that to myself every day. What can I do today that will make 
it's something different, something new. You know, it was making my homemade granola was my morning challenge. And what, what, how could I get rid of the sugar? So the listeners know she emailed me this morning saying she made her homemade granola, to which I wrote back, you're making me hungry. <laughs> I was just going to eat it in front of you, but I don't want to be rude. But, you know, those kinds of things where it's like, I bet I could do that. I bet I could do that. And I consider it fun. I love to cook. I love to bird. I, there's so many things that I am passionate about. And when you align up your passion with these challenges, it's it's tremendously fun. I, I hate this idea that it's a sacrifice. So the next step is, it's. I heard a couple of things, the bark butter, maybe food things, maybe packaging things, maybe. So the next step is to make whatever you come up with a smart goal. So a specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Oh, I got to write that down. Say it again. Oh, if you look it up, you'll find it. Smart oh, goal. Okay. Different people interpret it slightly differently, but it's. I, I say S-M-A-R-T is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Mm-hmm. So if someone says something like, oh yeah, I'll decrease my packaging, that's much harder to do than to yeah. say, I will have one package-free meal per week for one month. You know, I, mm-hmm. And it just makes it much easier to do. Right. right. And oh. you know, I'm not saying change something for the rest of your life. Some people have chosen to do that, but most almost no one has. And uh, some people continue after they do it. So of the things that came to mind or any others that come to mind, can you come up with, let, let's make one into a SMART goal, which then, then we'll have a second conversation and I'll ask you how it went. Right now? We won't have the second conversation now. We'll, have, we'll come up the with- The goal now? Yeah. And okay. so if, if you're up for it, which you don't have to, but if you are, then before we stop recording, we'll agree on what it will be. Okay. All right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. So you're saying, what's the time frame to Anything to come you want. Back to I mean, it? it can be short, it can be long. Because I was thinking of a gardening goal and it's, I'm not sure when I'll be able to get into my garden because it's snowing today. So, you know, that. It doesn't that have to be next know. week. It could be, I mean, okay. some people do things for a year and I don't talk to them for a year. Well, we talk in the middle, but I, I'd say, don't tell me okay. about whatever. Okay. You know, yeah, I, I can come up with one. I, I would like to, and I, I already talked to my dad a little bit about this, but I, I really want to get better at starting my own seeds for tomatoes and peppers and those, those two in particular, because I've had a lot of failed attempts. And I think that if I could start my own seeds, it would just be that much with, with heirloom seeds, it would be that much closer to, I've been gardening forever, but it, that's one thing. I don't have the room here, but my dad has it at his house. And I would really like to be successful at that, find the, find the mediums that work and then give them away to people saying, you know, would you like a heirloom seed that, you know, doesn't have that you can keep the seeds if you dry them, you know, just kind of maybe spread that around to, to my friends and, and give them away because, you know, if I am successful, I'll, I'll run out of room. Although I have, I have a third of an acre I can plant. So getting better at seed starting, I think would be a really measurable goal. All right. So that tells me that you're going to, I heard that, and, and correct me if I misunderstood, you'll somehow obtain some, some seeds, I guess, tomatoes or whatever heirloom things and plant them at your father's place. I have a grow light already, so I can bring it there. Yeah, I think that would be, I, I have to, I have to figure out the whole apparatus, but that's, that's, I, I mean, I, this is, this so fits me because I'm always thinking like this, like, what can I do a little better? What can I do a little bit more? And never thinking that you've done it all. I mean, nobody has, that's for sure. Then when do you think, how long do you think it'll be before, if we schedule a second conversation, that if I asked you, how's it going, you could give me an answer of like a meaningful answer. Oh, about a month. A month? Okay. Yeah. So after we hang up, if it's good, if, if it works for you, then 
I propose we schedule a second conversation for then. Works for me. Okay. That is the process. The first process, the first part of it, the second process, the second part of it is how it went. So mm-hmm. we don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll all fall apart. Maybe it'll be more awesome than you expected. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to get listeners, and one of the reasons I bring on, I try to get very well-known people in various different fields is so that people at home can say, it's not just me. Right now, you go to Starbucks, they give you a plastic cup. You're like, ah, I don't want plastic. And then you look around, well, everyone else is doing it. I guess it's okay. I don't know of someone out there who's remotely trying to live sustainably. I'm creating that community. And one day I'll have Oprah, LeBron, Serena, Madonna, Bruce (laughs) on the show, or I'll be on Mm -hmm. their shows or whatever. And they'll share. I don't know what they're going to share. It's probably not going to be working on on a nature preserve with birds, but it'll be their equivalent, something that's very meaningful for them because I haven't met a person yet who doesn't love something about nature. Right. That's so true. If only we could connect... And, and I, I see you very, very clearly wanting to make people connect those dots. You can't just love it. You have to realize your responsibility to be the steward because we're the ones with the, with the power, for sure. I believe that you, for all you've done already, you'll have yet another connection that you'll enjoy. And I believe oh, that when people sure. hear it, they'll think, you know, one of the trends, people who listen to a lot of episodes, they'll pick up that the people who do the most or who have already done the most tend to come up with something pretty quick, even though they're doing the most. And the people who aren't doing stuff tend to find justification for why what they're doing, they're already one of the good guys. Oh, no, I've never seen myself as one of the good guys. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are like, look, I have an electric car and I installed solar. So this doesn't describe anyone because I have to keep it general. So I don't want to talk about anyone in particular because everyone, I got to start where the person is, not where I I am or where I think they should be, where they are. And where they are is, look, I drive an electric car. What more can I do? What more could I do? Because there are people who feel that way. And Uh, the last thing I want to do with them is is to say, you don't even know what you're talking about, you idiot. And in fact, I have to purge myself of that feeling, of the the mindset that would lead to that. So if you had called me last week, I would have said shampoo bars, but I've already accomplished that. I like them. They're better than the bottles. And Mm -hmm. that's what I would have said, shampoo bars. There's always Mm -hmm. something you you can change. That's the view of someone who sees joy in stewardship, which is where I am. It's not what do I have to do, it's what I get to do. And most people, acting in stewardship is a burden, it's deprivation, it's sacrifice, it's, it's, it's an obligation. And when I hear someone say, here's one little thing you can do for the environment, not connected to anything, and they don't have no idea what the person cares about, that's extrinsic, that's coercion, that's cajoling. And I think that motivates a lot of people away. I agree. I agree. I, I agree with all that. Joe. I really do. And, you know, I, I, the other thing I often said, it's, it's hard to criticize a happy person because people will, will as, as you've probably experienced in your life, will, will give you advice you never really wanted. But if you're smiling and you're enjoying your life because you're connected to the meaning behind what you're doing, it's really hard to come up to you and say, you know what you should do? Because, because, and it's like, well, I'm, I'm happy. I'm bye bye. You know, um, and not that we all don't need advice at certain times in our lives, but, but it's hard to argue with a happy person. Because I've often taken the road less traveled, and it's been a great road. That's why what what you said now is, it's hard to give advice to a happy person. It, when I look at the the emotional exchange of one person saying to another, "What you're doing is morally wrong," and here are the facts. It's Uh saying, I want something to someone who is happy. 
And that's like saying, and, and to me, if I'm on the receiving end, that I'm thinking, I'm happy, you're not, and you want me to be like you? Thanks, but no thanks. That's why I talk so much about the, the and not just talk about, well, I, I invite people over for my famous no packaging vegan stew because they taste it. And like, I remember one guy came over, super staunch Trump supporter, and he takes a couple bites and he goes, if you didn't tell me there's no meat in there, I wouldn't have believed it. I, I wasn't even thinking about that because like I've been, I haven't eaten meat in so long. I don't, I don't even think twice about it. He's like, this is really good. I'm like, and I thought that that was more persuasive to him that it just tasted good. He, and then any amount of arguing. That's so funny. I'm laughing because they used to have a chili feed where I used to work. And I, I asked them if I could bring my chili. And they said, uh, sure. And I didn't tell them what my chili meant, but it was a vegan chili, basically. And, uh, you know, they just, God, Karen, this is really good. I said, great. You know, what kind of meat you put in here? And I, at the time, this was like years ago, I was give me lean or one of those things that unfortunately is highly packaged, but it was more like, wow, this is good. And I've taken people to restaurants and in show and goes, I didn't think I'd be full from vegetarian food. Go, well, what are you experiencing? You know, but I, I think you're, you're so right. There's so many of our, our, our fellow people who care deeply and there's, they're so they're literally doing this and they have a right to do this, but it's not something that attracts people. She's hand wringing by the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, you're. you're I, I can see you. Therefore, I can't. You know, your listeners are going to say I'm wringing my hands. Hand wringing is justifiable, but it certainly doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work for you, and it doesn't bring about your best self to to share with others. And and I had this this one guy who is since deceased, but he 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 wrote a book on leadership. And uh, you you might enjoy the. I think I could probably get you the book called Healing Leaders. And he just said, make sure, excuse, excuse my French here, but he said, make sure your shit doesn't smell when you're trying to change people's minds. And he meant was, don't give off this anxiety that makes, that repels people. So I've been very conscious of that to try to not be super anxious, you know, with my hair on fire and running around, you know, the earth is ending kind of thing, because people will just go, okay, bye-bye, see ya. And that's not what you want. You want to bring people into the tent. And uh, so I, that's sort of a tandem thing to what you're saying about joy, I think. One of the things that we'll see if it survives the edits, but so far in the book, I put the word experts in quotes every, I think every time, because anyone who thinks that the issue is carbon dioxide, mercury, deforestation, they're not addressing the problem. The stories, the, it's our behavior. Our behavior is driven by our, our, our culture, our images, our stories, our systems. And as long as you're talking Absolutely. about the effects of those causes, you're not going to change the causes. And right. you can, we can. We don't look at slavery the same as we used to. That simply doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In Thailand, they don't look at population the way they used to. In Costa Rica, they don't. In Iran, I guess, in, in my understanding is that they're trying to raise the population. And, and yeah. But they like a lower population, a smaller families too much, and they're trying to jam it back up again. They're trying to bribe them. I know. I know. At first, they use the Koran to try to control people to less children. It was kind of easier to go that way. But I, I totally, that's why I wrote the second book about changing our stories, changing our world, because I, I just think that takes some reflection to realize what story are you buying into? Uh, and should you be? You know, just... I mean, you have to ask that question. I ask myself that question all the time. 
why do I give that so much power? Oh, that's the way I was raised. How do I allow myself to see another way? And that's sort of my journey as well. I propose you pick up here next time because we're going to have a next time. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so glad I boldly went, hey, Josh, I'd like this. (laughs) I just said one morning and see, this is my life. I just kind of go, I'm going to try this. And oftentimes it works out very well. And I hope you're pleased. And I am, I am for sure. Well, glad to have you. And actually, I'm going to use that as a way to circle back to the beginning about the underlying culture, because you talked about the guy found you, sorry, I forgot his name, but when you were working at the nature place and Mm -hmm. he found you, and that was part of that undercurrent, but then the number of people that we've overlapped on, it seems that there is a community. And of course, if you come out and talk about overpopulation, there aren't that many people yet who are openly talking about it. So we're going to find each other. But that tells me that there is more of a subculture than I think most people suspect. I, I believe there is. I will tell you that ever since I've written my book, which was six years ago now, twice a month average, I will hear someone reach out to me and say, thank you for writing it from all over the world. I, I have friends all over the world that that just keep saying thank you for, for writing down what I was thinking. And so I agree with you. There's, there's quite, there's a many, many people of like-mindedness on this and it keep, it's very, it's very rewarding to hear that. I'm tempted to end right there, but I'll, I'll ask if there's anything I didn't think to bring up or, and, and at least tell us the books, your website and any other closing message. Okay. Um, so I, I've decided to put my blog and everything on one place at www.movingupstream.com and people can find my email there and they can contact me. I love to hear from people. I love to have conversations. I love to be educated. I don't know it all. I, I might just know the questions. I might just know the questions and I keep, you know, I'm, I'm a learner along with everybody else. So thank you very much for having me on your program today. Well, Karen Schrag, thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.